I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Just as the things in your life come and go and the people in your life come and go and none of it is permanent. Similarly with your beliefs and your thoughts, none of it is permanent. It's going to come and go. So what you can do while those things are there is you can cherish and value them for as long as they're there, but not cling to them or assert them or feel accused or reproached or attacked by them. And if you can start to do that a little bit, all of this will be much, much easier. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Now, before we start, today's episode deals directly with suicide. My guest and I will be talking sensitively about suicidal thoughts in order to get a better understanding of this challenging issue. We will also include many strategies for coping with these thoughts and several for friends and family who've lost a loved one to suicide. However, if this is all a bit too raw for you just now, I'll give you the opportunity to hit pause, to come back to the episode later, or not at all. I've also put helpline details for various territories in the show notes. Okay, so... The World Health Organization tells us at least 10% of the world population suffers from chronic suicidal ideation. That's getting close to a billion people. Suicide is a leading cause of death around the world, and in certain populations, it's the number one or the number two cause of death. The CDC, the American organization that tracks such things, estimates there were 1.7 million suicide attempts in 2021 in the US alone. And as anyone who has followed my work here knows, this disease of despair, as it's called, is contributing to a declining life expectancy over there. And now it's doing the same in the UK as of this year. In Australia, it's the leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. And half a million Australians attempt suicide at some point in their lives. Now, some of you listening might be aware that I recently lost one of my closest friends, Tim, to suicide. He was a well-known figure in the community, having taught thousands of people to meditate, including people on their deathbed, people in jail, and people suffering deeply from deep psychological pain, including myself for many years. And he might be familiar to those of you who've read my books and listeners to this podcast. His wisdoms have guided me profoundly over the past 15 years, and I've written about them and I've referenced them here on Wild. 
He was also a guest on Wild some time back. And for those interested, I'll put a link to this wonderful episode, one of the most popular of the 100 plus interviews that I've done in the show notes once again. As you can probably imagine, this has been a very confronting time. Suicide surfaces all kinds of big and hard questions. And I know that many of you listening have been very confused and hurt by Tim's passing or perhaps from losing someone close to you who also took their own life. We can find ourselves feeling angry, you know, threatened by these questions that suicide raises. Like, what is the point? Why do we live? None of us gets to choose to be born, but we all have the option to die and it dangles this option, right? As Albert Camus and many others have pointed out, there is no meaning to life. It's entirely absurd. And so why do we live? Part of the problem of suicide in our culture is that we don't talk about it, despite the fact that so many are affected by it directly or indirectly. When I trained in journalism, it was and remains a well-respected protocol that when you're reporting on a death, you avoid mentioning or detailing if it was a suicide. My guest today, however, has written on the subject extensively. Clancy Martin has also attempted suicide at least 10 times and possibly more than 20 times and written a powerful new book, How Not to Kill Yourself, which combines his personal story with philosophical analysis to explore what it means to pursue self-destruction. The book has been met with stunning reviews from The Atlantic to New Yorker to Esquire magazine and a host of endorsements from the big names in the space. So Kay Radfield-Jemerson, Andrew Solomon, Scott Stozel, and so on. Clancy today is a philosophy professor at the University of Missouri in Kansas City and Ashoka University in New Delhi. He's a Guggenheim Fellow. His writing has appeared in countless journals, including Harper's, The New Republic, The Paris Review. He's written two best-selling novels. He has five children, and you could say he has had more lives than a cat. I feel very, very fortunate to have him join us today to answer delicately many of the questions that remain in the face of and wake of a person so close to us choosing to take their own life and suddenly being gone leaving us with nothing where once there was them. I found our conversation indescribably heartening and helpful and just beautiful, even if I had to hold back crying the whole way through, as as I am now. It was very much the kind of conversation I would have with my friend Tim. As I say, this might not be an episode for you. To be honest with you, I struggled to ensure I delved into the right amount of detail to make it real and also heartening, but not too much to trigger distress. And I will confirm that it's a thoroughly life-affirming chat. Also, I'll just say this, I will always encourage confronting difficult topics, particularly when the topic is affecting our culture and particularly the vulnerable so significantly. Anyway, let's now meet Clancy Martin. Clancy, thank you so much for joining us all on Wild with a very difficult subject to to cover. And, you know, off air, we just had a bit of a chat about the context behind all of this, having lost a very close friend of mine recently and still grappling with it also grappling with a lot of people contacting me who are grappling with it. And I thought this was a really good time to have a chat with somebody who knows the subject intimately, philosophically, 
and sort of somewhat brutally, I've got to say, <laughs> having having read your book. I know this conversation probably demands a fair bit of you, so I appreciate it in advance. I'm very grateful in advance, but it's really hard to know where to start off a conversation like this. There is no innocuous starting point. There's no chit-chat starting point for all of this. So I thought I might just dive into some context in around your life. And I suppose I'd love to know how young you were when suicidal thinking started for you. Thank you, Sarah, so much for having me. And I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your friend. And for people who are listening, you know, if you yourself don't know someone who has taken their own life by suicide, one of your friends has has knows someone who has taken her or his life by suicide. It's so, it's, a, unfortunately, it's a, a very common way to die. It's almost always in the top 10 causes of death worldwide. And the World Health Organization tells us that 10% of the world population suffers from suicidal ideation, probably chronic suicidal ideation. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. And it's frustrating to me at times because it's something we can all do something to, to help with unlike so many of the other leading causes of death. And the way we can help is exactly what you're doing, Sarah, just get people talking about it. It's the best medicine we know of for, for suicide. And for me, to answer your question, the desire to die and starting to think about ways of taking my own life is among my very earliest memory. Well, included with my very earliest memory. The earliest memory that I have that feels like a kind of concrete, real memory is um, rubbing my some carpet in uh, a home that we left, I know, when I was about three years old. So I was around two or three, and I remember thinking about the color of this carpet and the feel of the carpet, and I remember very much wanting to die. And, and it stayed with me. My first attempt was when I was six years old. And then uh, there had a couple of attempts when I was a teenager. And then in uh, my 30s and 40s is when the volume sort of really got turned up. So it's just been, I was amazed and incredulous. I didn't believe it when I first started to understand that there were people who weren't this way. I thought everybody, I mean, for years, I thought everybody just was wanting to die all day long, thinking about suicide all day long, just trying, you know, fighting this desire to kill themselves all day long. And when I started to talk to people that who were like, no, I don't feel that way at all. I, I, to be honest, I didn't believe them for a long time. And then I thought they were just self-deceived. And, and then I started to slowly realize, no, there are people who just don't think about suicide very much and the lucky devils. But anyway, that's me. Is that something that you found in your various interviews and conversations and among the people that you've met in psych wards over the years? Is that common? Is that something that, you know, for, for people to have started that suicidal ideation so young, and to have that lack of awareness to, or to assume as kids do that everybody else would think the same way as you do. It's much more common than people think that I know for certain. Having talked with my students about this, yes, people I've met in psych wards, people have reached out to me since I've been writing about suicide. And then just we're getting better and better statistics on this now that more and more people are working with children on this issue, psychologists working with children on this issue. We're finding out that the old dogmas we used to believe about suicidal thinking that it did, didn't occur until a certain age are false. And, you know, I was recently 
giving a talk about suicide. And one of the psychiatrists who happened to be there said, yes, I, my youngest patient to die by suicide was a five-year-old. And I've had lots of patients ages four, five, and six talk to me about their suicidal ideation. And this is really sort of new to the discussion of suicide. We didn't talk about it before, about age 10 for a long time. And age 10 was revolutionary when they started talking about it. And then it's only recently, as as I'm sure you know from your work, it's only recently that people have started talking about um, suicidal ideation and chronic suicidal ideation and what we call passive suicidal ideation, which is the people who are dealing in a daily way with the thought of wanting to take their own lives, but and you know, never planning and never actually make an attempt. It's just part of their mental landscape is this, you know, desire to take their own lives. And it's been remarkable to me since my book has come out, how many people have told me, oh, I've never made an attempt, but I have this passive suicidal ideation has been, I mean, in, including people, you know, very close friends of mine who knew that I had made past suicide attempts, but had never been open with me about their own suicidal thinking before. In so many ways, we're, we're very open about discussing things. It's almost the last taboo, isn't it, suicide? And I've been feeling that to be the case in the last couple of weeks since I lost my friend, witnessing people's reactions. As you say, it, it doesn't surface. People don't talk about this stuff. It is the one topic when I raise it, people really are deeply uncomfortable. They really don't want to believe you. They want to sort of almost mock the the fact that you have brought it up or have contemplated it or have they want to know sort of a couple of details but they don't just to prove that maybe you're real about it it's a really odd realm given that we've become a lot more open about discussing mental illness all kinds of sexual leanings I get it because it is the most confronting thing. And I think we'll unpack, unpack a few of the themes that, that are raised by suicide in this discussion. But before we move on, I just want to clarify, I know that you've said you've sort of attempted suicide 10 times as a sort of minimum, but, you know, maybe up to 20 times. It depends on how, how you count it. Is it roughly right? Yes. That's more than 10 times and... You know, depending upon what counts as an attempt, either or either fewer than or more than twenty. But I mean, it's it's hard not to laugh. I mean, that a person could be so incompetent in something that doesn't seem like it's that difficult, but it actually turns out that I don't know. Some sometimes my attempts have been, you know, sort of even in making the attempt, I had sort of thought to myself, I don't know if this is going to work. But a lot of, of times, I've just gotten extremely lucky. So I don't know. I maybe I just was not destined to die by my own hand. I, this is it's it's amusing even to me <laughs> some of the some of the ways that you do write about it and I'm thinking of that period in your life where you were a jewelry salesman and you kept a, a gun in the back room and you know every now and then you'd go out the back and you know think about about doing that you count that as one attempt but you know you I think you said you did it almost every day I did yeah I as you say when I was in the jewelry business I had a couple of few different handguns and it became part of my morning routine at a time I was fighting such constant depression and depression of a kind where I felt like the only way I could escape it was by taking my own life. And it became part of my routine. I'd get to the jewelry store. I'd get some coffee. 
I'd get my handgun and I'd go back into the bathroom and I'd put it in my mouth and look at myself in the mirror or sit on the toilet or sit on the floor of the shower that was in that bathroom. And I'd just try and try and try to pull that trigger and that, you know, I'd do that for 10 or 15 minutes and fail to do it or would not do it happily, would not do it. And then I'd go back and this went on, honestly, in a daily way for months until one day my daughter came into the store. She was four, I think at this time, and she opened the drawer and I was busy talking to someone. And then before I knew it, I saw she was about to grab my gun. And I was so, you know, my stomach still rolls at the thought of this. And then I was like, okay, well, whatever other purposes I have for this gun, I can't keep a gun in the store anymore because, uh, you know, suddenly just put it in a different light for me obviously. Yeah. And so then I got rid of the gun and that happily that phase ended. And ever since then, I've never and will never own another gun. And I, I encourage all suicidally inclined people just do not own a gun. Yeah, that's it. I don't, I don't want to dwell on that too much, but you do raise a point that there's always been this strange paradox for you. And I would imagine for many people in your position, you know, people would ask, well, how were you so successful at failing suicide? I mean, and I think that's part of the the fact that you you joke about it a little, and it's it's not a laughing matter, but there is there is that anomaly there. And you write in your book about two conflicting thoughts that have shaped your life. I wish I was dead, and I'm glad my suicides have failed. And it's a very difficult paradox to get your head around. And I think a lot of people, I'm sure, who you've confronted in your life really struggle with it. When I was talking to people about this conversation that I was about to have with you and I described, you know, your your story, people were like, well, how can he have tried so often and for it not to have worked? And I guess it comes down to this idea of having two conflicting thoughts in your being. And I'm reminded of that very famous article that did the rounds, and I think it became a book, Lessons from 29 Golden Gate Bridge Jumpers, you know, who they were interviewed. They managed to live after an attempt at um, taking their own life. And they all say, all 29 say that they're glad that they lived. But the point's often made that they then go on to try another time and sometimes are successful. But I'm wondering if you can talk us through this very central theme to your book and to your life. Is it something that philosophy or your Buddhist practice can resolve in any way? Is that something that you can describe for us? In my experience, uh, having spoken with so many people who have made suicide attempts and some who then went on, unfortunately, after we became friends to die by suicide, Everyone I've ever spoken with has a similar thought structure, belief structure to my own. That On the one hand, they really want to die. On the other hand, they feel like there's all this in my life to be grateful for. And there are these experiences that I've had that it wouldn't have been possible if I weren't here. I'm glad for these experiences. It's infrequent for me to encounter someone who just feels like, you know, no, I absolutely wish I had never been born in the first place. And, you know, I absolutely have no desire to live that I have spoken with those people, but even those people, very often you speak to them later on and their, their, their mood has changed, their depression has lifted and their belief system has, has changed a bit. And 
I do think that in my own case, one of the reasons I have, and I am lucky enough to be here speaking to you today, that my that I've been so incredibly incompetent at taking my own life. On a number of occasions, as I say, I've just had really good luck. And as I was going off a building, for example, a, a friend of mine caught me and almost went off the building with me. Thank God neither one of us or both of us almost died that day. And there have been another a number of attempts like that where a doctor has told me as I woke up in the hospital, you know, you really shouldn't be here. You you just got incredibly lucky. But then a lot of times I think that my attempt has been sort of infused with that, like sort of, uh, you know, as Keats says, half in love with easeful death. There's been this sort of, you know, also... Um, with the desire to die, the certainly always fear of pain, of acute physical pain, that's always been part of the problem, honestly, or part of the solution, I guess, and part of why I've been lucky. But also sometimes not so much, I don't think, a fear of death, but a, a kind of last minute clinging to life, like wanting, especially not wanting to die in a violent way. I, I, as I say in my book, you know, I think much more that what has governed my own relationship with suicide has been less a fear of death and more a fear of violence and a kind of gut reaction against violence. And I think that has probably wound up saving my life. But I want everyone who's, you know, and there be a lot of people out there uh, listening to us who struggle with suicidal ideation. And I think it's important for those people to know that it's, you know, it's okay for you to have incompatible beliefs. We all have incompatible beliefs about all kinds of things, you know, just to be in cognitive dissonance that it really is of the essence of being human, you know, and it, particularly at your most human, honestly, you never experience the kind of cognitive dissonance that you'll experience when you're falling in love, for example, or when you're raising a child, for example, oh my God, just cognitive dissonance all day long. And similarly, it might be the case for you as it is for me in your relationship with, with life, with the fact of life. Now, weirdly, miraculously, and I don't know if it has been because of writing the book and coming face to face with myself about so many really painful things. But the past five, six months have been weirdly free of the desire to kill myself. It's not that the thought doesn't pop into my head anymore. It does, although also suddenly with much less frequency than it used to. And I, you know, I want to knock on wood. I might be jinxing myself by saying this, but the desire has I don't have the desire anymore. It's strange. And it may very well come back. You know, I won't be surprised if it does. But that's super interesting that you say that, Clancy, because I wrote a book about my anxiety, my my journey with bipolar and fairly extreme obsessive compulsive disorder. And what's really interesting is that writing that book has been my greatest cure because I've fleshed out the ideas. I went into it so deeply. It was this wrestle that I did. And that in itself, I think, resolved so many of those paradoxes, those tensions, and I got extremely real. And I love this phrase that you use in your book. I reached a certain type of adult sanity from that process. Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to say that I'm so 
pleased to hear that your writing your book was as therapeutic for me as writing my book seems to have been. I did not expect it to be therapeutic in that way. And there was a time a couple of summers ago when I was deep in and when all of a sudden a wave of depression hit me like one of the very worst of my life. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to go on. You know, the book, the book isn't worth it. But then it passed surprisingly quick. I made, I did some tinkering with what I call, you know, my my spiritual or my psychological nutrition. I changed a few habits. I changed my exercise. I watched what I was. I changed what I was eating a little bit. I just I changed my meditation practice a little. I did some tinkering, and it it went away. Thank goodness, quite quickly. For years, I've been telling people who struggle with these kinds of thoughts, write about them. It's just you know, this journaling will help. I think journaling is a kind of meditation, but I'm still very, very pleased to hear that it had the same and reassured to hear that it had the same effect on you that it seems to have had on me. I also think, Clancy, I think there's also something, you know, just referencing Albert Camus, who struggled with all of these conflicting ideas, you know, when pushed, I think, on on sort of how to resolve his despair about the point of life, you know, that ultimate question, why live? And he put it down to sort of having a responsibility to others, caring for others. I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but something to that effect. And, you know, you put out a book, all of a sudden there are people looking to you. I mean, I wrote a book about quitting sugar. It basically put me in a position where I could not walk down the street drinking a can of right. Coke, you know. <laughs> it, it did wonders for my sugar addiction. And writing a book like the one you've written, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And I think it resolves a tension that I want to move on to now, which is another sort of set of conflicting themes, I think, that exist in all of us, not just those who struggle with mm. depression, anxiety, anxiety or suicidal ideation. But it's, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this, to what extent is suicide the profound awareness of the absurdity of life? And that's something that Camus and other existential philosophers explored. You know, that's this idea of, well, what's the point? Why should we live? We, we, we keep looking for an inherent meaning in our existence, in, in the point of life. And there isn't one, right? And to what extent is it rather a profound sense that we're just not worthy, that others are better off without you? And I know that when I have been in, in very dark places, that the absurdity of life has really gripped me. That's been something that I have felt from probably the age of seven. You know, I've, I've, I've wondered what the point is and it just seemed ridiculous. And I turned to religion. I turned to, I used to read the Bible. I used to go to different uh, churches trying to work it all out. And I asked questions that were probably very unusual for a kid my age. But what happened for me is that I actually took that question to its logical depth. I went as far as I could down into the cul-de-sac of, of, you know, existential thinking and right at the point when, and this happened on three or four occasions where I was about to take my life, it suddenly occurred to me how hilarious it was. There is no point to life. And what if I was to then emerge and 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 walk this mortal coil doing it exactly how I want to do it and I create my own meaning? And they, that really became a big part of my recovery was to treat that as my mission. But what I'm really asking is your thoughts on whether it's about suicide is predominantly about the awareness of the absurdity or whether it's a sense of worthlessness. Yeah. 
and to what extent it's a mix of both? Well, it sounds, I should say, it sounds like we were very similar children. <laughs> I wish we had been friends when we, when we were kids. You would have had to be a very good tree climber because I used to do all of these oh, thoughts high up yeah, in trees, well, you know sitting what? alone, gazing out to the horizon. There we go again. I also was, I've, I've broken both of my ankles at least twice, I think three times on one ankle and bo- broken both of my wrists multiple times because of tree climbing because I've fallen out of trees so many times as a kid. I was a very avid tree climber. But yes, and you gave such a brilliant exposition there of Camus' position and really the existentialist position when it comes to the question of meaning of life and added to it this point that I always want like to stress when I'm talking about this, which is a point that comes from the great Christian existentialist Miguel Unamuno. Unamuno says the Spanish people have to choose between Quixote and Christ. And when they have to choose between Quixote and Christ, they will always chose, choose Quixote. And the reason they choose Quixote is because he, he makes us laugh, because we have to laugh rather than cry. And also being able to laugh at ourselves, I think, is part of how we learn to care for other people, how we learn to listen to other people, how we are slowly come around to caring for each other. Once we realize that we are not necessarily so terribly important, we can laugh at ourselves and then we can place the appropriate attention on someone else's suffering, someone else's needs, the way in which we might be able to help someone else. And as we all know, anyone who has been in the position that you and I find ourselves in of having been very open about this kind of suffering. People come to you with their suffering and you get the chance to help them. And that, of course, is enormously therapeutic for the person who is doing the helping. We hope that we are as helpful right. to them as they are to us when, when we help, when we try to help, when we listen. For me... The answer to this question about the absurdity of life and the feeling of worthlessness, those two questions are ultimately inseparable because they're both predicated on this idea that our belief systems have to be somehow or other strongly tethered to these ideas of of what we know and what we do not know, right and wrong, that we have to have this kind of bivalent way of looking at the world, meaning or no meaning, valuable or not valuable. And as long as you continue to think in that bivalent way, at least speaking for myself, you're always going to fail to live up to the test. And life is also going to fail to live up to the test. And you're going to feel worthless. And you're also going to feel that life is worthless. But that's not the right way to think about it. The way to think about your belief structures, and this is what meditation can help to teach a person, is that your belief structures are just like any other set of thoughts that you have, any other set of preferences or desires or inclinations that you have. They come and they go, they're there and they change. And just as the things in your life come and go, and the people in your life come and go, and none of it is permanent. Similarly with your beliefs and your thoughts, none of it is permanent. It's going to come and go. So what you can do while those things are there is you can cherish and value them for as long as they're there, but not 
cling to them or assert them or feel accused or reproached or attacked by them. And if you can start to do that a little bit, even just a tiny little bit, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, if you can just learn to be a tiny bit gentler with your thoughts, any kind of thoughts, including the most fearful, terrifying and and self-accusing thoughts, if you can just care for them a little bit and be a little bit gentler with them, all of this will be much, much easier. And, and mm. this is what, what a Buddhist practice and meditation is teaching me. You know, I'm only a baby as a Buddhist practitioner. I'm only beginning to learn. And, but it, it has helped me in that way. And I think any kind of meditation will teach you more or less the same sort of thing and will also be very, very helpful to anyone who suffers in that same way. I, so frustrated yeah. by the story of David Foster Wallace, who put, who answered another one of your questions really well. He said, you know, the suicidal person mm. is like someone standing in a burning building. It's not necessarily that she wants to die. It's rather that, you know, this, this self-contradictory thinking, it's that she, she would rather leap into the abyss than be be burned alive. Yeah. She's, you know, she, she's too afraid of the flames not to jump. And it's frustrating to me that, that David Foster Wallace had just begun a Zen Buddhist practice when, when life became too much for him and he, and he made his final attempt. Yeah. As I mentioned the, my dear friend who, who, took his life recently was in fact my meditation teacher and I think that's created some real difficulties and challenges for people who've been left behind because it's like well you know if the guy that taught us these kinds of wisdoms couldn't hack it what's it mean for the rest of us and I wouldn't mind actually touching on that because I think there's a real sense of betrayal and anger that can come about when people lose someone to suicide. It's a it's a, it's such a confronting response. Often people immediately in the aftermath feel that it was a it was a, a betrayal and a selfish act. And I'm sure you've watched the documentary with Anthony Baudouin, the the chef. You know, I, I witnessed that amongst his friends and anger, a disbelief, even two years after their friend's passing. They almost were trying to find someone to blame. And I felt they blamed his girlfriend at the time, but that's by the by. I'm wondering what your thoughts are or what kind of way you might be able to explain what happens. Like I've been trying to explain to people who've, who've sort of felt betrayed by, you know, by this, this friend of mine. And the way I explain it is that sometimes when you're in that headspace, the pain is so intense, the flames are so present that you go into a parallel universe it can't be explained by the normal responses in conscious life. It's it's this sort of strange, almost liminal space that you go into. Is there a way that you try to explain things to people who are feeling betrayed or angry in the face of suicide? Yeah, I. It's a such a again such a helpful question. For the first thing I want to say is that for those people who are blaming themselves for someone else's someone the death of a loved one by suicide please don't do that probably you were the reason that person stuck around as long as she or he did or part of the reason that person stuck around for as long as she or he did they were probably going on living in in at least in part 
because of you, no matter how, no matter, even if there was some final fight or something that you tie to this death, uh, uh, small potatoes for the suicidal person. Mm -hmm. The suicidal person has probably been, in most cases, people who die by suicide have been fighting with suicidal ideation for a long time. Similarly, your story about your, it reminds me of a story from my own uh, Sangha, from my own group of meditation practitioners. A student once came to one of the senior instructors and said, you know, why is everybody in the Sangha so crazy? You know, and he said, well, we don't practice meditation because we're sane, do we? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what did you expect? And so I want to tell people who are angry or feel betrayed, look, we don't know what has been going on inside another person's head for weeks, months, years. And as you you correctly say, Sarah, sometimes you can you enter this the strange liminal kind of vortex where every thought that you have seems to reconfirm the the previous negative thought and make it worse and worse and worse. And you're just spinning down and down. And then that's when suddenly it seems like there's only one way out. And this person who the person you're angry with because they took their own life, let's say, and, or you feel like they've done this terribly selfish thing. You don't know how long they've been fighting this battle and the ways they've been the techniques they've been using to try to help themselves and to help other people who might be suffering from this same thing. So try to bear that in mind that this person probably has been really fighting the good fight a long time. More often than not, I think it's just someone has reached her or his limit. They just couldn't go on anymore. And they've been struggling and they're struggling and they're yeah. exhausted. And very often, you know, they're making an attempt they don't know how it's going to turn out and they get unlucky. You know, they feel like they can't go on anymore. They make an attempt. Some people are like me. They get lucky and they survive maybe over and over again. There are other people who get unlucky and don't survive. And they may very well have hoped not to die at the very time they were trying to take their lives. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Something that struck me reading your book, you refer to the fact that you see yourself as a suicide addict, that it's like an addiction. And I think in some ways I can imagine that would help some people understand things a little better. 
that it is a cyclical trap in the mind that actually takes over, a little bit like being an alcoholic, a drug addict, whatever it might be. I imagine that helps some people to see it in that framing. Is, is, is that the case in your experience? I hope it does help some people to see that it is, in my experience this way, and in the experience of so many people I've talked to who struggle with suicidal ideation or are repeat attempters. Yes, if you, you, you know, no one wants to be a heroin addict. No one thinks, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a junkie. Or when I grow up, I want to be, you know, a falling down alcoholic. And no one wants to be a repeat suicide attempter, trust me. But this doesn't prevent us from falling into all kinds of different sorts of addictive patterns in our lives. And these addictive patterns that we fall into are almost always self-destructive. It may even be the case that they are always at some level self-destructive. They are ways, addictive patterns, addictive structures of belief, generally speaking, that we use to try and escape ourselves, whether it's, you know, you're addicted to your phone or you're addicted to shopping or you're addicted to sugar or whatever it is. It's some way of like getting away from the you-ness of experience for a little while or thinking that you're going to be able to get away from the you-ness of experience. I used to be able to, I used to talk with friends and my students about this and say like the, when I still drank alcohol, that sometimes just the smell of Clancy was so overwhelming. I just had to get away from that smell of Clancy. And of course, drinking a few beers and suddenly the smell of Clancy would dissipate and it wouldn't, wouldn't be so oppressive. And hmm. of course, suicide is an extreme form of trying to get away, getting from, away from Clancy, getting away from Clancy. In, in fact, I really think that, um, you know, when, when Martin Luther King Jr. and Thich Nhat Hanh talked about these monks who were burning themselves alive in protest of the Vietnam War, and Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, in the Christian tradition, we think that suicide is wrong. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh said, you misunderstand what they're doing. They're not committing suicide. Suicide is the attempt to ex not to end one's life, but to extinguish oneself they're not trying to extinguish themselves, at least not in that way. You know, they know that when they die, these monks firmly believe that their their mind is going to continue to exist and they're going to still have all the problems of being human after their physical body dies. What they're doing is they're engaging in a particular form of speech, a particular form of protest. Um, has nothing to do with the extinguishing of the self. And yes, I think if you can recognize in your own experience ways in which you may have addictive habits that have to do with trying to escape yourself, you could have a little more sympathy with the case of someone who yes. has this problem with the most extreme form of the attempt to extinguish yourself, which is, which is suicide. Yeah, yeah. I, it really struck me when I read that in your book, just that sort of absolute need to, well, just finding yourself and your own thoughts just so despairingly vulgar, you yeah. know, it's just, it's unbearable. And like with other addictions, you can want something and be totally repelled by it at the same time. You know, if you think about, if you're quitting, yeah. if you're quitting cigarettes, for example, you might, I, you might think, oh, how much I want a cigarette. And then at the very same time, like how much I do how not. Disgusting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is how addiction works. Yeah. You know, similarly with the person. Yeah. I think it's a really helpful way of explaining 
explaining it to people who are struggling to understand the mindset of the person who is who has chosen to to leave life you know i know that in the book you are almost reluctant to give advice you, you, you sort of give advice and then you pull back from it and and again you display that that ambivalence the paradox of it all but i know that there are some very clear tips that you share for people who are in a bad space you've touched on a few already but one of the things that you talk about or write about is this idea of impatience and that you quote someone as saying suicide is the urge for hasty transformation and one of your suggestions drawing on stoic wisdom is that you can always kill yourself tomorrow <laughs> and that seems like a a very watertight hack yeah, I mean, this is just like my standard playbook stuff. First, <laughs> first, first thing I say to people, you know, people come to me thinking about taking their own lives every day, usually by email. And the first thing I say is, look, you can always do this tomorrow. This is, as you say, the, the Stoics pointed this out. They, they called this the door is always open argument. Choran, the great Romanian philosopher, used to have people come to him a lot and say they were thinking of taking their own lives. And he'd say to them, look, suicide is a positive act. You can do it whenever time you, anytime you like. So why not wait a little bit? And he said, and you, and, and you will feel better. And he said, and indeed, they always do feel better. This also has been my experience. If you can just wait a day, you will find that in the vast majority of cases, the pressure will ease, the blinders will open, the pain will lessen, and that's all that you need. You just need to ease the pressure, lessen the pain, open the blinders a little bit. Just wait a day. And and, and please, people, if someone comes to you, reaches out to you for help, don't try to solve their problems. Don't tell them that suicide is right or wrong. Don't just listen to them and encourage them to wait a day. And now there's one other thing that I think I didn't mention in the book that I also always do, which I encourage people to do, which is in that day that you've given yourself, now you've just, just given yourself a day. You can do whatever you like with it, right? I mean, it's a free day because you were gonna kill yourself. So now, I mean, just do whatever you please with the day. You've got this free day of life. I encourage people to try spontaneously smiling at one person. And the reason I do that, and it sounds a little cheesy, I know, but it works. The reason I do it is that you, if you spontaneously smile at someone, you've suddenly improved that, who, you know, getting a spontaneous smile, such a wonderful thing. Smile at someone who looks like they need a smile or isn't expecting a smile. And then you will remember that you do have some, you're not all bad. You're not all wrong. You're not all misery. You have something good to and that smile would not have existed were it not for you. And whatever benefit that person received from that smile would not have been in the world. It was impossible if you weren't there to give them that smile. And just that, if you can do that much, well, that's all you need to do. You know, that's, that's more than most people do. I think also accessing that playfulness is a wonderful tactic um, for anyone who's struggling from depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. Entering the playful space of, of running the experiment of smiling at someone creates an openness that I think can can see you access almost a playful dance or flirtation with the absurdity of life because here you are creating the meaning. You're yeah. in the act of creating the meaning. 
And Clancy, something you just said before, somewhat ironically, somewhat tragically, does remind me of, you know, one of the wisdoms that my dear friend would share with me in my darkest moments was he used to say, and, you know, people listening would might be familiar with this phrase because I, I did a podcast with him on this very topic, is keep the camera rolling, Sarah. He'd say, let's see what happens. Let you, me, the universal flow, see what happens because the story hasn't ended yet. Keep the camera rolling. And yeah, it's 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 something that worked for me. You know, I know people have said to me, I've, I've written about some of the wisdoms that my friend shared with me and many others. And people have written to me and said, why couldn't he listen to his own advice? You know, and I'm sure he did. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he did. And the greatest gift that we can give to someone who has passed is to live the life that they wanted you to live. You know, that, that's how I've chosen to take, take on things is to live as fully as I can and to take on all of the beautiful wisdom instructions that he, he left with me. But yeah, look at, look at, look at the life and all the wisdom that came before that unfortunate end, you know, and how much more he had mm. yet to give were it not for that unfortunate end. And this can be a lesson to all of us why we should keep the camera rolling, you know, because we don't know. We, we actually do not know what we might yet have to give to the people around us, you know. And we don't, we, we, th we think we know what life is going to surprise us with, but we don't. It's all kind of, and the only way you can find out is by keeping the camera rolling. Run the experiment. Exactly. Yeah. One of the other wisdoms that you mentioned, I think somebody close to you once gave you this advice, feel, if you're going to feel sorry for yourself, I think they said, actually feel even more sorry for yourself. And you said that that helped you that more than anything else that you've been told at a particularly bad time in your life. Why is that? Can you explain that particular wisdom? Yeah, I can. This is the great American avant-garde short story writer, Diane Williams, one of the greatest short story writers alive today. And Diane, I, I was in a bad spot and told her and she, and I said, but I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm just I'm sure I'm just feeling sorry for myself. Don't worry about me. It'll be past. And she said, never say that you're sorry for feeling sorry for yourself. Feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. And the reason that this was, had such an incredible impact on me is that I realized that so much of what was making me miserable was this self-recrimination, you know, like attacking myself for the way I was feeling, feeling guilty about the way I was feeling. You know, the, the Buddha has this marvelous parable called the two darts. And he says, there are two darts. The first dart is suffering and there's nothing we can do about that. We're all going to suffer. The second dart is the suffering that we create in response to suffering, our suffering over suffering. And it's that self-recrimination, that self-accusation that like, I shouldn't be suffering or I, you know, or I deserve this suffering or I'm a bad person because I'm suffering in this way. That, the second dart, we do have control over, our response to the first dart. And there was just one, Diane Diane showed, showed me that like, if I could embrace my suffering rather than embrace my self-pity, rather than accusing myself on account mm. of it, then 
it, it's just like that Thich Nhat Hans thing about holding on to your feelings and caring for them, then, you know, suddenly it's like, okay, yeah, this is workable. This is manageable. This doesn't require some kind of desperate resolution or some decision or action. It just can be. And it ties into this earlier point of yours about patience and impatience. If you're an impatient person and you're suffering, you're going to feel like you have to do something about it. But if you could just be a little more patient with yourself, then you realize you don't have to do anything. You can just kind of let these things be. And I think this is part of the wisdom of, of your friend's advice about keeping the camera rolling. You know, the camera doesn't have to control anything. It's just, just there experiencing, you know, letting things happen, watching it happen. Yeah, it it creates a playfulness once again. And what you just said then about the darts, the Buddhist, you know, parable of the, the two darts, it's very similar to what I write about in my book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, where I talk about how a big part of anxiety today is this idea of being anxious about being anxious. And we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious and we go down this horrible rabbit hole. Yeah. And, you know, one of my tips is to do anxiety once. And to do that, one of the mindsets that's worth taking on is that a panic attack, which is abject anxiety, concentrated, generally lasts about 15 minutes. And when you know that, you can actually be patient and sit through it and do the pain of that anxiety attack, but not let the second dart um, take hold or, or, or cause injury. So I think that's a, a, a your friend's uh, way of encouraging you just to, yeah, you know, be more miserable, feel more sorry for yourself, do that emotion fully, just just don't add another layer to it all. Yeah. We've talked a couple of ways of, I guess, managing a situation where a friend or a loved one comes to us and we feel that they could be suicidal. One of the things that you said was to to not talk to them about the meaning of life and try to show them that their idea of, you know, around killing themselves is a stupid idea. You know, there's a few things that you talk about in the book that can actually, I guess, equip somebody who's in a difficult situation like that as a friend or family member. What are some other really sort of fail-safe ways of handling that situation? Yeah. A friend of mine who's one of the chief architects of the 988 emergency mental health crisis line here in the United States told me that in his opinion, just an ordinary person is much better equipped to help most suicidal people than an expert. Although, of course, we always want to encourage right? people to seek professional help. And the reason for that is that to get someone past a suicidal point really the ideal person is someone who is just willing to be a caring listener in that moment when the person is going through a crisis. So if you're feeling suicidal, you know, please reach out to some, I've, when I've been in a bad place, I've texted someone, I felt safe to text, not got a response. And I, one time I texted my roofer and said, hey, I'm having a bad day. How's your day going? And, and my roofer helped me. And this is a guy I'd only met a couple of weeks before. But why did you reach out to him out of interest? What was it that made you want to you know, I, thi I think I had texted this other person and then I noticed his name popped up along with these other, you know, contacts. And I was and I just sort of thought, you know what, I'm just going to and I text him. He seemed like a he seemed like a, a companionable sort. I'm just going to text him and, and see if he texts me back. It, it felt it felt like 
someone who I guess who could help. In the vortex, the weird parallel universe vortex of liminality of the suicidal mind, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah it does, doesn't it? Yeah. And But anyway, if, if someone reaches out to you, yes. So listening and just keeping the person talking, really important. And because what that does is it gets them, gets them breathing again. It's, you know, ideally could get them into this place, playful space that you keep mentioning that is just crucial. If you could get someone into that playful space, it might, it might be a little bit much to ask for when they're right in a moment of crisis, but it's a, it's definitely a goal. Just creating some space is uh, some space for them to move is good. Lightening the pressure a little bit. Then if you can, you know, keep them talking. And if you can, in my experience, get them walking, it will help. Particularly because the physical space that they're in is probably contributing to the kinds of thoughts that they're having and any sort of planning they may be doing is probably also involved with that physical space. So getting them out of that physical space and getting them, you know, the, the desire to kill yourself is very much tied up with claustrophobia and and panic. And um, these, these feelings are intimately intertwined. Once you get walking somewhere, you get the physical feeling of space and it contributes to the mental feeling of space. And then also they'll probably get some endorphins going just from the very light exercise that is happening. And that, that will also help them. So if you can get them walking and talking, this is really, really helpful and keep them talking. You know, that really is the most important thing because the moment of crisis for the vast majority of people will pass if you can just even get them three, four, five, six minutes of talking. And then make sure this is really important too, to check back on that person. You've left them, you're convinced, okay, you're not going to, you've asked them, you probably should ask them, are you thinking of making an attempt today? If they say yes, it's well, okay to ask that question. It's really important. Yeah, it's really important to ask that question. If you feel like they're making, if you feel like they're in danger of making an attempt, say, hey, I just have to ask you, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Are you thinking of taking your own life? And if they are, they'll be so relieved that you asked because they'll be, you know, you're afraid to tell mm. someone, hey, I'm thinking, but now you're validated and now you feel safe. Now you're like, yeah, I was, I'm thinking about killing myself right now. And it feels so good to be able to tell someone that when you're actually feeling that way, you know, and, and for them to hear you and to take you seriously and not to dismiss it or to try and, you know, oh, but come on, you've got five kids to live for. You've got a dog. You've got all these wonderful things in your life that, you know, what about your responsibilities? All, those are all the wrong things to say. You just want to say, okay, I'm really glad you told me that you're thinking of killing yourself. Now tell me why, what's going on, you know, and keep them talking. And then, as I say, if you can get them moving out of the space too. Once you're that conversation, once you're feeling like, okay, I've gotten them safely to wait another day, make sure you check back with them the next day. And you probably are going to want to check back on this person, even if it's very brief, frequently for a little while, you know, and yeah. it doesn't have to be much, just a quick text, just saying, hey, thinking of you, you know, wanted to say hi. That's all you have to do. There's a thing called the motto method, which is proven to work in reducing suicide. And and all it is, is just like sending out an email or a text or a letter just saying basically thinking of you. That's all you've got to say. 
And that will have a significant effect on reducing the likelihood of that when of that that person acting on her or his suicidal ideation. So do that. Then, you know, of course, at some point, you may want to also encourage this person to think about, you know, I, speaking of my own experience, when people start asking me, how are you seeing a therapist? What medications are you taking? This kind of thing. It often feels sort of mildly accusatory, and I don't find it to be terribly helpful. And now I'm just speaking totally from personal experience. I think uh, for a lot of people, it's it's statistically proven that suggesting that, you know, hey, couldn't hurt maybe to try scheduling a meeting with a therapist or something, yeah. it can be a good idea. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that, Sarah. But the most important thing is letting them know that you're listening. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Clancy. I think it can come across as very condescending. And You know, and fair enough, because somebody who is in that space has thought through, in their mind, every single possible angle. And they've, of course, thought about therapy and medication. They've, of course, gone down that line. So I think that phraseology that you use, I think, is perfect. Like, look, you know, maybe this could work for you or, you know, gently suggesting it or really not suggest with with no sense that you have a better idea of what's going on, what's going to be better. Right. Yeah. You know, one time a therapist was really helpful to me, you know, something like that. Like one time when I was feeling so, and yes, if you have had personal experience with this kind of thinking yourself and this person reaches out to you, tell them your story. Absolutely. This will be helpful to them. Yeah. Uh, We can't hold back and be polite and be all, um, you know, sort of worrying about triggers in those situations because that person has exposed themselves to every possible idea and and exposed themselves to the the worst scenarios um, that they could imagine. So yeah, they're um, way we past don't need to all tread that. Too delicately. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, it's a question that I I mentioned I mentioned before that I do ask a lot of philosophers and big thinkers and people who touch these subjects, these difficult subjects, at the end of the podcast, and it is it's a question that not everybody gets, but I think it's a particularly profound one. And it's what is left, Clancy, when you lose it all? And I think it's something that Camus had to to grapple with. I know you've been so close to losing it all many times over. What is left? What is left when you do actually get the gift of of life, you do fail <laughs> or succeed at at not dying. Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, when I was married to my wife Amy Bairdale, we were married by this by this great teacher. His name is Zongzar Jamyang Chensei Rinpoche. He spends a fair bit of time teaching in Australia, actually, his Australia song Australian Sangha mm. is large. And he said to us, you know, there's no Buddhist wedding ceremony and, and there's good reasons for that because we Buddhists are not big believers in marriage. But so I want what I want to tell you guys is this Uh, Love is like checking into a motel room. You know, you check in, you have some fun in the motel room for a while, and then you have to check out again. And that's just the way love is. And that's the way I want you both to think about it. And to me, this is a good teaching about what is 
what is left, you know, what is, what is left is just the fact of being able to, if only for a little while, being able to experience at all, whatever it happens to be, being able to experience anger or sadness or fear, but also happiness or caring for other people or wishing you were loved or loving someone else, whatever it happens to be, you know, being able to experience that at all. I mean, sometimes I go out and, you know, I love to garden. It's a habit I've picked up in middle life, like I guess a lot of middle-aged people do. And when in the wintertime, when my plants are all dead and they, I mean, they really look dead, you know, like they're never going to live again, especially my hibiscus. It looks so dead that it's just amazing <laughs> when in the middle of summer, all these green shoots start coming out and the flowers are popping up again, these giant, giant pink and red and flame colored hibiscus flowers. And it's, you know, experiences like that, isn't it? That pops up on you and you have that opportunity to just simply experience things, which otherwise we don't know. We don't know what might be waiting around the corner. And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter so much what is waiting around the corner for us as it is just like being willing to wait for it. You know, mm. I think it's that there is something left. Now, ideally, it's that space that you're talking about, Sarah. I love this, this mantra of yours of play that space to play, just that little bit of creative space and with enough, just a little bit of creative space, who knows what you're going to do with it. And that's kind of part of the point of play. You don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really informed, I guess, the title of this podcast, which is wild. Because in the end, I decided that I was going to keep playing with life and seeing what would happen and letting the camera roll. And, and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, it was a process. It was about, you know, accessing this adult sanity, you know, which is takes work and it takes also just living longer. I, I gradually realised that this can actually just be playful. You know, it is absurd. It is absurd. All of it is. Yeah. And so what are we going to do with that reality? Ah, oh, okay. Well, let's see what we can do and play with it. I like your answer. I like it. So it builds on Camus' answer, which is, you know, helping other people, being of service. And uh, I'm so glad that your book has seen you access that, that, that feeling, that sensation, that mindset because Clancy, you are an absolute delight to talk to. You're a wonderful company. And, you know, I've got to say, I'm really, really super glad you are so bad at trying to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's a gift. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm so <laughs> bad at it too. And like you, I agree, Sarah, some of it just, you know, is having the good luck to live a little bit longer. You sort of live a little bit longer and then you do start to see that, you know, wildness is a good thing. The you dots know. join up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 No, it's wonderful. And hey, listen, put my phone number down, you know, just where your roofer used to be. And if ever you need to talk to somebody, let me be that person. I've got okay. the tips now from the expert himself. So yeah. Okay, awesome. great. I will do that. Lovely Thank chatting. Thank you very much. Great chatting with you. So kind of you.
Okay, listeners, I appreciate that some or perhaps a lot of this conversation might have been hard going for you, but there's a quote from Simone de Beauvoir that Clancy runs in his book, and I think it's wonderful. It goes, this is what chills your spine when you read an account of suicide, not the frail corpse hanging from the window bars, but what happened inside that heart immediately before. She's absolutely right. That's exactly, I think, what goes through us when we hear of somebody taking their own life. Off air, Clancy and I talked about how at the core of a person who is in distress, so much so that they feel they must end their life, is deep care, big, deep, wild care. And this is something I always say to people who are in the throes of painful anxiety, but you care. That's why you hurt. And that matters. I'm sure you all felt how much Clancy cares, and it's why we need to look after the carers wherever we can. Many of the wisdoms that Clancy shares for doing this, um, for helping others, for helping yourself in a bad place, are also wisdoms that speak to living fully and beautifully, I think. And this is no coincidence, I think. Philosophers throughout the ages have spoke of the need to appreciate death, to talk about death in order to fully live. One or two of the insights that really grabbed me from the conversation is this idea of accepting the paradoxes, the multitudes that we all contain. We despair and we love it all. We can't see the point and we still decide to live. Life has no meaning, no point, and we can, in fact, precisely because of this, we can choose to be playful. We might be the teacher and we may also be struggling more than our own students. Both and and all of it. So some of the other stuff that he shared is this idea of, you know, walk and talk with somebody who's in a bad place, keep them walking and talking. And there's that stoic line, why not leave it a day? You can always kill yourself tomorrow. Or as my beautiful friend would say, keep the cameras rolling, beloved wild friends. I'll catch you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.